Hello and welcome to Gardener's Podcast, part of Garden Church in Southern California. Today we have a very special episode from our families team. Pastor Bill Doctrine brings wisdom and insight to every parent in part one of a course titled Theology of Parenting. After the talk, there's a panel discussion with Shalene Pineda, Daniel Chestnut, Keith Swafford, Alex Roundson, Amy Schmidgall, and Alex Nomavuka. There's a lot of good stuff here, guys. Let's get to it. It's good to be with you. I want to um, invite those of you who want your money back because you came expecting some advice on how to have perfect kids and all that. A, there's no such thing. Perfect is a Western standard, not an Eastern standard. Uh, Second, I'm the wrong guy to teach that. Almost everything I've learned about what I'll share tonight, I learned from failure. Um, And um, I invite then the the learning in together, right? Uh, Because we have a kingdom perspective on parenting that is different than the, any other perspective on parenting. As far as I can tell in my research on this, no other community has understood the primary job of parenting to be the discipling of adults into adulthood of, of their children, uh, the way the kingdom has. Uh, the way Jesus honored children as people first, not as extensions of their parents. And that's really hard because if I've defined my role as parent, then who my children are reflects on me. And from the get-go, Genesis chapter 2, the invitation has been to leave home to differentiate from families of origin. So I think it's essential that you fail as parents, that you disappoint your children, that you allow them to disappoint you so that they have good reason to leave home and you are glad to see them go because you've spent the last 15, 16, 17, 18 years equipping them to thrive without you. Then you can renegotiate your relationships as adults, brothers and sisters in Christ, with a sub-role of parent-child moving forward. Does that make sense? So if that's not what you signed up for, too bad, because that's what I'm doing. A couple of things to remind you of very quickly. That is to say, what we're going to look at is this idea of parenting as soul care, kind of an introductory idea of this, um, is, is to say that to care for another person means to help them become more fully themselves. So think about how that percolates down, if you will, into the raising up of our, our, our children. That is to say, my task is not to make them an extension of me. My task is to to enable them to become more fully themselves. And that requires, of course, that I study them, that I learn them, that I don't make them a project, that I don't make them an object. Even in our culture, would it be fair to say there, there is an idolization of parenting, of marriage, of, of children, and it's damaging uh, all the way around in that, in that regard. 
Um, so, um, and by the way, if you want to interrupt or ask questions or while we're going, um, feel free to do that. Uh, I'd rather circle back around rather than wait till, um, till, till later to, to do that. So please notice then that caring is not a feeling. It's an action. It's nice if it's got some feeling behind it, but at the end of the day, I can care even if I don't like very much, which is sometimes really helpful. I don't know. I've only got three boys, but there have been times in the course of the last 42 years that I have not liked one or the other or all of them uh, for, for sometimes days in a row. And I know that it's also true as they have looked at me. So, so if you want to be liked by your kids, you're probably not going to be able to care well for them. Got that? So the, the idea here is, is to, to um, respect them as other than you, profoundly to respect them as other than you, which is, means to say, I can't, I can't uh, if I'm going to do this well, if I'm going to care well for them, it's not about manipulating them to a certain outcome that I know is best for them. It's about... Uh, what the proverb says, train up a child in the way he or she should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Here's the problem. This uh, proverb has been interpreted to mean something like, um, train up your children in the way that you think they should go, and when they're old, they won't disappoint you. In fact, this is an image from horticulture. It's an image from the vineyard that recognizes the uniqueness of each vine that's planted. And so the image is study the vine and build a trellis that supports the life of that vine. So when the vine is mature and heavy with fruit, it won't break. So... If you can think of it this way then, uh, perhaps this is another way. Learn your children well. And if you've got more than one, you know that they're each unique. Uh, so that you can build a trellis, build a supportive structure that um, will support each one. And then when they're old, they, will be, they won't break under the weight of a full life. That sound like a reasonable goal? Um, and and that's, so that's what we're after um, in our conversation. So what are we doing when we parent? First things first, we are being ourselves when we parent is a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual discipline. Remember the reason ultimately from a kingdom perspective that perhaps you got married is towards Christ-likeness. Uh, similarly, when you had children, the, everything moves us towards Christ-likeness because that's the only thing that will last past death. The relationships we have with one another will end when one or the other of us dies and won't be renewed in eternity. The relationships we have parent to child will not persist into eternity. Our, our eternal identity is going to be determined by the in Christness of our being.
will know each other, will recognize each other. We will have an honoring of the relationships we shared with each other. But, but our, our way of being will not be in that kind of relationship that was determined uh, while we were here on the planet. So it leads us into an, an awareness that, that I've, I, I want to, as much as possible, and this is the ideal, be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all and everything I do. So as I'm disciplining my children, as I'm, as I'm uh, caring for them, as I'm loving them, the ultimate goal is the kingdom of God and God's righteousness in, in, in that, right? First things first. Um, but then also we are discipling our children in response to Jesus's command. This is the only thing at the end of the day that was on his mind as he was getting ready to leave. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples of everyone you meet. And that includes then our children. Would that be fair to say? Uh, but it's important, as you guys have heard us talk about this often enough, I think, at the garden, uh, we need to respond to Jesus's challenge in terms that respect both outcome and strategy. So discipling for Jesus is, first of all, immersing them in the love of the Trinity. He, he uses the word baptize, but it's the language of immersion, the language of soaking, the language of, of saturating them in the name, in the character, in the personality of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? Which is, John says, God is, this is the audience participation portion of the night, God is love. So Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into all the world and I want you to make disciples. Here's how I want you to do that. I want you to soak people in the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit which has saturated you. Then when you've done that, he says, you can teach them to live the way I've taught you how to live. Don't get that backwards. Don't be teaching before they've fallen in love. Because what you have to teach about following can't be learned in advance of loving. You learn it on the way. So we fall in love with Jesus until we're stuck with him. Then we follow him, and along the way we discover how to live the way he lived. This is the, the, the overall pattern. Does, does that make sense? So, so this means uh, when, when we come at this, parenting is really about helping our kids fall in love with Jesus. And of course, the best way to do that is for you to be in love with Jesus. More than you're in love with your kids. More than you're in love with your husband or wife. Because when they see your life lived in a way that does not make sense apart from your love for Jesus, they'll wonder how to make that happen. Now, that doesn't mean always as it did for Jesus. Some people were soaked and saturated by the love of God through Jesus himself and choose, chose to go another way. Might happen to you and your kids too. No guarantees, right? Um, so... Um, that's the annoying thing about the love of God. It refuses to be forced on another. So, um, I forgot to put my timer up. How much time have I got left? Thank you, Amy. I will keep track of myself now. Uh, so, what are we doing? Second things. Um, we are 
engaged, and I think this is where I pick up the notes now, in this idea of, of stewardship. And so the, the way I approach this, the way I think about this, is that we are not the possessors or owners of our children, especially if you have dedicated your children. Part of the process of dedication is a returning of them to God, a recognition that I'm a steward. I, I am going to be held accountable for the gift that I have been given at some level in my children. And uh, then, there, therefore, I'm accountable in that, in that way. I'm not an owner. I'm, I'm a steward of, uh, of the gift of my, my children, which means they're not my property. They're not an extension of me. Uh, I have primary responsibility, and uh, I, I want to be a good steward of them. We've already talked about the idea of discipleship, which involves learning uh, of loving alignment, which is my uh, um, uh, language for obedience. Uh, obedience has taken a a bad rap lately. It's not a bad thing, but uh, often we just recoil at that, at that language. So notice how Jesus shifts the conversation. When, when we begin to walk with him, he says, do what I tell you to do. But after we've been with him for long enough, remember what he says? I don't call you slaves anymore. I want you to do what I ask you to do because you love me. So Loving alignment flows out of the relationship that we have been trained into uh, similarly to, to uh, the way Jesus uh, made, made disciples. So we lead in our own following of Jesus and make it easy for our kids to, to discover and implement their spiritual gifts. Uh, you know, we've, we, we talk about this. There's no junior Holy Spirit. Our, our kids and youth ministry uh, focuses on helping kids uh, begin to learn into what God has has given them and practice of, of the gifts of the Spirit. I love that. Uh, and there, there's a stewardship that comes from that. That is, that is uh, not uh, oppositional to what Jesus has uh, trained, trained us up in uh, uh, as well. He reminds the disciples often that it's children who are going to lead them. There's a lot of, of rationale behind that. And then, of course, uh, there is this formational piece of which, of which we have spoken, uh, is the formation of character. The, the, the home, the community are character and spiritually formative environments. More unintentional than intentional. So we can try to be intentional in the character formation of our kids, but if our unintentional ways of treating and speaking to one another undermines or is in contradiction to the words we speak, those will have greater power than the words we speak. So live it, then teach it. And often, having lived it, you won't need to teach it uh, because uh, they'll pick it up in the, in the, in the air, in the, in the environment. So this is teaching about life with words. Uh, following in, in that order. And, of course, this is a partnering with the Holy Spirit. Raising children is a spiritual discipline. It's a way in which you are being, like I said, being formed to Christ-likeness. So, so how do... And the, the, the only one who has the capacity to transform us into the likeness of Christ is the Holy Spirit. He's really good at it. So I want to, I want to offer up my parenting of my children to him 
to use in forming me to Christ-likeness, to have kind of in the back of my mind the constant question, especially when I'm in tension with my, my 13-year-old, uh, and, and David at one time had, had six-inch, his hair's black, six-inch platinum blonde Liberty Spikes, red, white, and blue, right down the center. It was gorgeous. Took him an hour and a half to get that. So it only lasted about two weeks. But during that period of time, it was like, dude, what, what, do, you, what do you, and, and at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit, what do you think I'm trying to do with you? No, Jesus, it's not about me. It's about him and his rebellious attitude. Imagine how I will look as the pastor of the church when my son, by this time six feet tall, walks into church with six-inch liberty spikes. And Jesus said, since when did it become about you? Well, it's always been about me, Jesus. I mean, you, 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 get the, you get the point, right? So this idea of formation invites us into that partnership and then to model and, and, and invite opportunities for um, immersion in the Trinitarian reality of love. Um, and especially, are our children formed when we acknowledge the mistakes that they know we have made? We screw up all the time. We're broken people parenting broken people. This is, since Genesis 5, there has been no family that's functional. They're all dysfunctional. They're all broken. So, so, so what, do we, what do we do with that? We'll own the brokenness because they know it, and they just wonder if you do, right? It's like, ooh, boy, somebody want to tell dad, uh, you know? Um, and I found, uh, maybe it's because of, of how I approach things, but I, my kids have learned way more from my failures than they have from my successes. The stories they tell around the table are on the multiple, multiple times that I got it wrong, right? And so when I watch my, my oldest son parent my granddaughters, I just weep because the boy's crushing it. I didn't think when they announced that they were pregnant, I, I thought, oh, this is going to leave a mark. You know, can he be trusted with my granddaughters? I'm not sure. It's phenomenal. It's like, holy cow, let me take notes. Where did you learn that? Well, he learned it from me negatively. Right? I watch him when he's angry, and it's like, I wish I'd thought of that because he's clearly angry, not inappropriately. And his way of being angry and my way of being angry, opposites. Ah, look at that, right? So the formational piece is at that ever. And the other, the other piece, just to remember, we're responsible for inputs and context, not outputs. Remember, Jesus told repeatedly stories of sowing of seeds. We're responsible to make sure the seed is as good as it can be, that we are responsible to sow. We're not even responsible for the quality of the soil. We just need to acknowledge that there are varieties within the soil. And um, so as, it, as we lean into it, we just need to give up the idea that there's perfect kids raised by perfect parents someplace, and that I'm not one of them. 
because that's simply not true. Uh, and then the final thing that we are engaged in is the raising of responsible adults uh, capable of functioning successfully in the current cultural moment uh, with the qualification that they have been informed by kingdom values uh, because that that is our role right it's it's part of part of part of the task so uh, what this means is a, is a variety of things uh, but this includes things like practical matters in terms of life skills um, and and again this is not just learned in the home this is learned in partnership with the school whatever systems you end up choosing in in the little leagues in the in the various sports and, and music and dance and activities Depends a lot on their age and personality and temperament, each one different. Um, the, the practicing of these uh, necessary life skills is really in collaboration with the village. Uh, Hillary got at least that right. Uh, is that too, too old? Didn't, nobody got that. I thought that was a good joke. It's like, it, you guys are as bad as my undergrad classes. Nobody gets my joke. They say, that was from the last millennium. Thank you. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the idea that I'm after here, though, is, is do they know how to balance a checkbook? Yes, there is such a thing. It doesn't have to be an actual book, but they should be able to keep track of money, know where it came from, know how it, how it got there, and know what happened to it. That is not learned out of the ether. That starts to, and some, some of them will have that very naturally, and others of them will not. You know, uh, when my son, oldest son, uh, gave the toast at his youngest brother's wedding, so there's 11 years difference between oldest and youngest, and Jan, my oldest, uh, said when, when, when uh, Peter and Chelsea announced their engagement, I bought him, I got him the book um, from my shelf. He already had it, generous that he is. Um, uh, total money makeover, Dave Ramsey's. Thing. And he said, the difference between me and Peter is that Peter read it. Yep, that's the boy. So as, as of now, the youngest is far more financially responsible than, than the oldest is because he read the book and put it into practice. But nonetheless, the skill levels to, to manage that is part, part of our socialization, if you will. Uh, the learning of personal responsibility uh, and uh, uh, a good work ethic. Uh, honest day's work for an honest day's pay, so to speak, right? The, the uh, learning of, I, I think it's important um, for as long as we have them available, uh, automotive maintenance. Boys and girls need to learn how to change the oil even if they never do it in adult life because they have a fabulously uh, remunerative uh, job that, that requires, you know, the story. Um, but the truth is, on their way through college, on their way through life, at one point in time, it might be helpful to know how to change a flat tire. And if they have to learn it on the side of the 405 freeway, that's a whole other layer of learning than in the in the in the in the driveway, uh, where where you can help them learn into that. Um, how do they boil water? Where's the recipe for boiling water? And and I know I had it here somewhere. 
um, a basic, do you see what I'm saying? So the idea is handing on these basic life skills to enable them to function, and some of them will flourish in it. Again, one of my boys is almost a gourmet cook, and the other is a gourmet eater, um, and so it works out really well. Uh, but also, how to clean up somebody else's mess when they prepared you the meal and to do dishes. Now, if anybody needs counsel or advice on how to do dishes, I want to volunteer my services. I am the world's leading expert in how to do dishes in a two-sink system with a dishwasher. Um, my wife, to this day, 46 years in, has not availed herself of the expertise with whom she is living, um, which is unfortunate for, for me. Um, so you get the idea. Um, also, though, uh, professional matters, things like uh, education. Um, I teach at a, a liberal arts college, uh, and I have often get pushback from parents at the cost of the college, not illegitimate. Uh, can you guarantee my son, my daughter a job? No, I can't. But that's not, that's not what a liberal arts education actually is for. Go to a trade school. No, by the way, nothing wrong with, not, we need way more people who know how to do plumbing and welding and auto mechanics than we do folks in my side of the, uh, so, so don't, don't mis, mishear me on that. But that said, when you go to a liberal arts college, the goal is not first to get a job, the goal is to learn how to read a book and how to think through an argument from beginning to end, and how to analyze it and critique it and respond to it. Because in an age of podcast wisdom, somebody's got to help us sort out crap from not crap. And it, discernment doesn't come uh, on, on, on a silver plate. You, you have to pray into that. So how to, how to do research, how to critique, how to think through that. And then, of course, just basic social skills. Looking at somebody when you're talking to them. Lift your head up when you walk into a room. Assume you belong in that space. Don't, 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 don't miss the opportunity for personal presence. Pay attention to old people. Respect them. Uh, if for no other reason than that they're old. That's good enough. You know, they survived you. So... Uh, and then, and then honoring the other as valued and enabling uh, independence. So, we good? Any questions? Clarifications? I'm I'm moving quickly. Not too. I don't think. We good? All right. So, basic disciplines for parenting in Jesus' name. First, have for yourself an established but flexible rhythm as foundation. The components of this are, in my view, a, a weekly Sabbath that fills up the reservoir that gets drained through the course of the week. Uh, and, and biblically, Sabbath is first, it's foundation, not destination. So we, we, we establish Sabbath as much and as best we can, and we can talk about what that means, although you've heard us preach on it often enough. Uh, but then I think there's a daily rhythm of connection with God. Sometimes it's five minutes of silence and that's all you get. And you have to lock yourself in the bathroom to get that. That's okay. It doesn't have to be 
you know, read through the Bible in, in, in a year kind of stuff. Um, but a regular rhythm of touching base, the goal of this is not to do it. The goal of this is to train your soul into awareness of God's presence with you 24-7. So that there is just a, a hiccup moment where you can sink below the surface of whatever's happening into the everlasting arms where you have an awareness that even in the middle of this chaos here, right there, I am, I am cared for. And, and that becomes essential, right, as we, as we parent in chaotic and confusing times. But then, of course, out of this, your own identity in Christ is really, really critical. Um, and again, not anything that you haven't heard us talk about, but you must increasingly listen to the voice from the heavens that says what is true about you. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That is true. So when your kid screams that they hate you and that you're the worst mother in the history of the world, or when your five-year-old has a meltdown because in her bean and cheese burrito, which she specifically ordered, she was upset that the beans and the cheese were touching. This was last Sunday. It's like, girl, that's what it is. Well, make it not. How do you keep, you got to have, oh, wait, wait. Oh, yeah, I'm not what she says about me. I am what he says about me. Right? And especially as they move through into the leaving home, which starts at about six months of age, right? They begin to exp uh, uh, their own personality. My, my youngest granddaughter, f sorry for the self-referential stuff, but you, it's what you signed up for, um, uh, has learned no, not as it applies to her, but as it applies to other people. And she just tries it out randomly. On, on, on folks, um, and has now weaponized it. So it's, it's I don't know what we're going to do. Um, but this idea is, is, begins, right, as they, and by the way, you want to encourage that. Because by the time they're 18, they need to be able to function without you. And if they don't, if you wait until 17 for them to leave home, they won't be ready. They are built for anti-fragility and will have been trained to be fragile. So how do, we, how do we create enough stress in the system that when the time comes for them to leave home, they want to and we're ready to let them go? D do you see? But in order to do that, I've got to really have a God, good solid sense of who I am uh, without reference to them. Then... I want to uh, train towards, and this is the hardest one, a non-anxious, uh, 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 non-reactive presence. Uh, kids, uh, begin to discover your buttons very early uh, through, through just random pressing of things, right? And, and they'll find the one that works and keep pressing that until it doesn't work anymore. So... Can I rewire the buttons so that it doesn't work anymore? And then it's like, well, that doesn't work anymore, so now I don't have to do that, right? I watched this the other day. Uh, a guy at Walmart 
had his, I don't know how old she was, probably three, complete and utter meltdown in front of the vegetable display. And here was dad just standing back, making sure nobody stepped on his daughter, just waiting until she was done. And then every once in a while you could see her in full tantrum stop and look. And, and my guess is that probably won't happen very often because it didn't have the desired effect. Um, no guarantees, but uh, then, of course, chosen love for your parenting partner. The most important gift you can give to your child is to love your husband, your wife. Because if you don't, you will almost always, and whether you do or not, one of the other of the other of your kids will slip into that role because they know it's missing. And they will take onto themselves responsibility for your marriage. They're not built for that. They, they are built to be planets in orbit. And the goal being that they can launch off on their own and you're going to be just fine. Two weeks ago, I had a conversation in my office. A girl in complete tear-stained horror because her mom and dad were getting a divorce and she wasn't there to prevent it. And she looked at me with shock and awe when I said to her, girl, that's not your business. If they want to be idiots, let them be idiots. If you were the first and final functioning adult in your family, that's okay. It's not your job to keep them married. Kids will take, and you know that, there are many narcissists. They're the center of everything that happens in their world and take full responsibility for it, especially if you have an older child that will, will step into that, that, that role. And so if things are, and they have radar, do they not? When mom and dad are in tension and conflict, it's like, okay, the parents are, are fighting. Who's, who's, who's going to take this one? If I love my spouse in a way that makes them feel safe, we're good to go. Um, next is this, uh, I've got this long chart here. I'm only going to work on the Erickson thing very briefly, uh, just given the interest of, of, our, of our time here. But I want you to uh, notice how important from Erickson's uh, uh, kind of so psychosocial development, most, many of you may have, can you read that if I get out of the way? This is from his book, Life Cycle uh, Completed in which he is saying there are um, uh, tensions that need to be resolved at each uh, age level. And how they get resolved, either affirmatively or negatively, affects the age and the tensions that get resolved later on. Uh, so, so he says the first one in, inf in, in infancy, trust it gets resolved in the first roughly six months where kids learn, can you be trusted? Am I safe? That doesn't mean, am I not going to be hurt? It's when I get hurt, will there be somebody to help me? Uh, and kids who learn that uh, trust versus mistrust, who resolve the tension on the side of uh, trust, who, who make the conclusion that the world, even though perhaps dangerous, is nonetheless a relatively safe space. Uh, they know their needs, generally speaking, are going to be met. 
uh, they will tend towards, Erickson says, kind of a, a, a drive and a hope. They will be looking forward rather than leaning back. They will be standing up rather than cowering. Uh, and unsuccessful uh, resolution of this tension tends towards solidifying uh, distrust and possibly towards the development of a survivor posture. Uh, in, in Erickson's language, in the first couple of years, starting at about six months, and sometimes even earlier than that, uh, there have been some studies that suggest that kids, even in utero, uh, develop a sense of the world into which they are going to be born. Uh, and uh, that there's enough on that that I, uh, you, we can talk about it if you want. Then uh, he says they move into early childhood where he says the, the, the central tension is autonomy versus shame and doubt. Autonomy is can I do things by myself? Notice the age, about two years old. I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. And the parent that recognizes, okay, this is good, assists them to do it themselves even if it takes a longer time and is messier. Because that autonomy enables them to, I don't need to rely on everybody else all the time. Uh, uh, you've heard the stories, sometimes sad and horror stories, where five-year-olds are taking care of a dysfunctional parent. I've had a girl in my class a few years ago. Dad was a, a, an alcoholic. Mom uh, was checked out. And she was the one who prepared dad's lunch as he went to work. Five years old. She'd learned how to do it. Enormous skills. Enormous. And five years not, not supposed to do that in case you had visions of distribution of labor. But um, that, that, that was something that she picked up that she needed to do. It was her job. Mom couldn't mom, so guess who momed? The five-year-old momed and stepped into that, into that role, which then had ripple-on effects until she and I met when she was 22. And as an adult child of an alcoholic, there are a whole range of things that flows, flow out of that, but that's a whole other, whole other conversation. Um, a successful resolution tends towards self-control, the development of willpower and agency. This is at, 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 at two to three years of age. Uh, unsuccessful tends towards inadequacy and insecurity. Now, you already probably have figured this out, but look at the likelihood of a kid trained in mistrust as they move into that second period. Already by the time they're roughly six months to two years old, they start a trajectory towards shame and doubt because they have been trained by their system to hide, that, that, they, that, that they are uh, uh, limited in, in their own agency. Um, then the preschool age, uh, the central tension is initiative versus guilt. Am I good or bad? Uh, ex by which, by the way, good and bad is often accepted and approved versus uh, rejected or disapproved. Uh, I'm, when I'm good, I'm loved, and when I'm not good, I'm not loved. And how do we communicate? You're loved all the time. What you did, not okay. You, you're okay. That's, that's a challenging 
concept for adults to, to gain. Notice how quickly we attach character to behavior, uh, even in our thinking about another person, right? So the idea here is, is um, uh, learning to uh, exert self-control uh, and power, uh, and successful resolution moves towards direction and purpose, unsuccessful towards guilt and self-dismissal. As they move into the ages uh, 6 through tw uh, 11, the school age, uh, Erickson says the central tension now becomes initiative and industry versus guilt. So you see the trajectory. And I'll, I'm not going to go through all of these, but uh, just to, in the early stages, there's a setting of the, of, the, of the trajectory. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Grace intervenes at every level. God uh, intervenes at every level. There is not a single card the Holy Spirit is dealt that he can't play a winning hand with. Not a single one. So it becomes critical that we say, oh, man, I really screwed it up with my six. No, no, no. 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 We, 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 we bring it in, and we offer up the rea reality that, okay, we made a mistake. Let's get used to that. It's going to happen often. Does that make sense? So the next thing I want you to just briefly look at with me in the five minutes uh, that I have remaining is what's supposed to be happening in the developmental piece. Uh, and you see the, the basic chart there um, in, in the first P, and, and which is the parent that's primarily kind of IE responsible. Both parents are needed all the way through with hands-on attention, but there was one parent or another typically in a couple of the stages that bear the primary load of this based on some of the things that Erickson is saying. In this first stage, from zero to five, it's mom who's the primary parent. The sense of, is the world a safe place? Uh, am I secure? Is there comfort when I'm hurt? All of those kinds of things. In the training of establishment of boundaries or, and or guidelines, mostly the discipline will be natural. We let them get hurt so that they learn what behaviors result in them getting hurt. If they get bubble wrapped and never hurt from dumb, they're just going to keep being dumb. And we have a whole range of adults who are PhDs in dumb because of the phenomenon, right? Um, and then sometimes parents, we have to get involved. The three-year-old does not know that you can't just run out into traffic and letting her learn that on her own is probably not the best practice. So instead, there might be uh, a holding of the hand a little more firmly, or it might be a swat that attacks attention, um, which is a far removal from anything remotely close to child abuse. And if you can't spank in cold blood, don't spank at all. In other words, if this is the white-hot temper that comes out in a rage that hits, sit on your hands. But if you're able, in a way that gets attention without doing hurt, harm, that it can focus. Now, that's my philosophy. That's my practice. I hope uh, uh, that you, you all, I'm not the steward of your kids. You are. 
But nonetheless, at the age of three, there's no reasoning with the many narcissists that you're, the, the, there's no rationale, uh, just while we're at this, there's no rationale almost ever throughout the process. Right? We think we're, we're explaining. You're not explaining. You're just making noise. And, and, and this is well up into adulthood. Because we like to think that we're rational people who arrive at a conclusion, having evaluated all the circumstances and information, and we have made a reasonable choice. And then we're married to somebody who thinks differently than we do, and we just try and help them. Understand how you do dishes in a two-sink system with a dishwasher, I know how to do that. I do. No, really. And, 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 and what we have discovered, uh, Jonathan Haidt found this in his research, that we are not rational beings. We are instinctive beings. We make up our minds within 30 seconds and then backfill with rationale. That's why your arguments aren't making any difference. They aren't what contributed to the outcome in the first place. So when we think about parenting, uh, this next phase here, shifting back into gear, uh, is mom and dad equally responsible before the age, between the ages roughly of five and 10. And the goal here is let's have fun. Let's fall out of trees. Let's make stuff blow up. Let's, boys and girls, right? Uh, remember that there is a range of gender expression that is masculine and feminine. There's a significant amount of cultural overlap that doesn't mean one person is one thing versus another. There's a range of masculinity that includes throwing rocks and eating dirt and playing with dolls. They learn that's not appropriate from the outside, not from the inside. So can we, can we dispense with the masculine-feminine dualisms and recognize there's a continuum that isn't about gender identity, it's about individual expression. And how we parent that becomes really critical. We'll talk about that down the line. Uh, the goal here is to let them make risks that at age five or six or seven, there's a whole park in the city of London uh, that what used to be a junkyard. And they have walled it up so, so people can't get in who are not supposed to. Adult parents are not allowed in. There are, there are referees. Kids alone get in. And they can start at age five. They could really seriously be hurt in this place. There's sh sharp metal, there's glass, there's broken stuff, there's things they could fall into. Over the years of the operation of this playground, no kid has ever gotten hurt because they know this is dangerous. I got to be careful. I need some help here. I got some friends. Let's do this together, right? And, and, it, and it shifts this understanding. This is why I love some of the initiatives that I watch our dads engaged in with sons and, and, and the, the idea of, of including that with daughters and saying to them, no, you can light a fire. You, could, you can put it out too. That's always a good idea. Um, so discipline, they're starting to explore the edges, uh, are mostly, again, natural, consequential, with occasional parental reinforcement if necessary. 
Uh, between the ages of 10 and 15, dad steps into the lead role with both sons and daughters in calling out and affirming their sons and daughters' uh, a, a emerging maturity, uh, sons' masculinity, daughters' femininity. So they uh, want to celebrate their daughter's femininity, her sexuality, without sexualizing her. They want to celebrate their son's masculinity without turning it into a competition. They want to honor their son's emerging identity as a man and celebrate that. By the way, in whatever on that range, that masculinity expresses itself. So if it's in gym gymnastics and ballet, the dad calls that out as an appropriate expression of son's masculinity. Does that make sense? Similarly, so, so we're in this. And this is very challenging because if dads don't have their own act together in terms of their own sexuality, they will be really troubled by their daughter's emerging feminine shape, mannerisms, and will be threatened by that. If they don't have a solid sense of their own strength, they will be threatened by their son's emerging strength. I'm the smallest in my family. I've got girl cousins that are taller than me. That's why I moved to the United States. I don't want to deal with those people. Um, uh, so from the age of about 12, all of my boys have been bigger than I am. What do I do with that? I celebrate it if I'm paying attention. Do, do you see what I'm after? It's not a threat. This is, this is the point. Finally, um, the um, mom and dad uh, are both involved in this now release stage from 15 to, to 20, roughly, uh, in which we want to empower our kids and release them with capacity for their life, but without control over what that life becomes. Uh, I have had too many students enroll in a major, for example, that their mom and dad chose for them, but which they know clearly is not for them. And not, that's just one tiny example. Um, by the way, you're pretty much done parenting in the formal sense by the time your kids hit 13. The last five years-ish is about enabling them, giving them freedom just before they're ready for it, and, and sending them off uh, with capacity into the world. Uh, so, anyway, I'm going to stop there, and uh, we'll move into the panel, unless there's just some clarification questions, in which case we'll, we'll stop there. We good? All right. Okay. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Um, give me a hand. <laughs> so, without further ado, we want to call up our panelists. Um, are you going to stay up here, Bill? Yep. Okay, cool. So yes, we, yeah, we'd love to call up our panelists. We have Miss Alex Roundsen, Daniel Chestnut, Keith Swafford, and Shalene Pineda. You can give them a round of applause as they come to this stage. I'm so excited. Um, where do you want Okay, um, there were a few people who came in a little bit late. Um, so Lexi, if you could put that QR code up one more time. 
Um, if you came in late, you can um, scan this QR code, and it's just a, um, an app that you can read questions people have been entering. You can add your own questions. Um, is everyone able to see this and the questions that have been asked? Um, yeah, so you guys can add some questions now if you want. On the left, you're able to pu push questions to the top that you're like, ooh, I want to know the answer to that. So while you're doing that, we would love for our panelists to introduce themselves, uh, just a brief kind of who you are. Oh, you were supposed to all have microphones. That was promised. Here we go. Maybe you have one on each side. There's another one. Cool. Um, so yeah, they're going to introduce themselves. Um, What's your name? How long have you been here? Who are your kids? And then we can go from there. So, do you want to start? Testing. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm Alex Roundsen, and Darren and I passed our garden. Um, I have two boys. I have a ten, almost 10-year-old 10 and a 6-year-old. I'm a homeschool mom. I'm a working mom. Um, I kind of wrote down some descriptions of my children, but I have one rule-following, joyful, really peaceful temperament kid. I won't name him. And I have a really highly sensitive, emotional, explosive, emotionally intelligent, deep child. Um, and I've had to just parent them both entirely differently. And there's a learning curve with each. So that's who I am. I love that. Um, uh, my name is Keith, Keith Swafford. Uh, my wife, Tiffany, and I, uh, we, have, we have two kids. Um, they are six and eight. Uh, we have a uh, boy and a girl. Um, we've been a part of Garden for a little over two years or so. Um, and I think unique to our parenting journey um, is that we didn't do ages one through three because we started with fostering with our two kids um, and now are moving into adoption with them. But uh, with the fostering comes with trauma and the, the, the Erickson model was awesome to see. Um, and so just working through trauma, big feelings, uh, all those sort of things have uh, been, I think, a, a, a little bit more unique. But I can't answer any questions about one through three. So <laughs> someone else can take care of that. Hey, I'm Shaleen Pineda. I have two girls, uh, 18 and 20. They're not young. <laughs> um, I'm in a new phase. And this is a phase where I feel like I'm starting over. And so having to learn how to respect them and um, just give space, I think, uh, for them to exist in our home, that's sort of where we are. I'm Daniel Chestnut. Um, Katie and I have our boy, Brooklyn. He is almost 12. And I think what's unique to us is I, I have one son. I love being his dad. I'm really passionate about raising my son and initiating him and being an intentional father. Um, but he gets all my attention and a lot of my time. Um, and I think that's unique to our family. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And I, t I, I guess Amy and I can also share um, <laughs> about our kids. But I have five. And they're nine, seven, five. Nine, seven, five, three, and one. <laughs> two girls, two boys, and a girl. Um, and again, very different personalities. And um, and I think something that's also unique that you share is um, we have like a, a cross-cultural home in our house and mixed race in our house. So that comes with its own unique conversations and challenges and celebrations. But that's us. Do you want to share yours? 
Um, I have a two and a half year old um, who just is ready to be potty trained because she just pulled her diaper off. So that's why I had to step out. Um, and then uh, 11 months difference, I have a one and a half year old. So one and a half and two and a half. So got the first question. All right, so we're going to jump right in. The first question that has been bumped up six times, and any one of you guys can answer this if you feel the burn. Um, how do you suggest arguing or disagreeing in front of your kids? What are some good uh, ground rules and ways to not make everything a closed door thing? Who wants to jump into that? Well, I was just going to preface this with the fact that when we were back there before we started, we basically all agreed that none of us are experts on any of this and we're all learning as we go. So everything we share, at least as far as I go, is going to be probably through mis through mistakes, as Bill said, um, and just growing through that. But I can share a little bit about what we do. I may not make any suggestions to you, but I will share a little bit of what we do. Um, in our home, we will have disagreements, but we will not have fights in front of our kids. So if we feel like we're hitting a point where one of us is gonna lose our temper or we are gonna say unkind things or even speak in a way that would feel threatening to our children, um, we just, we call a timeout and we will finish that conversation later. But we also do a lot of um, like review and repair with our kids. So we do that with them in their interactions when they fight and argue and then with Darren and myself if we have a disagreement. Um, we will come back around on the backside of that even if we have to take a timeout and finish the conversation later we will come back and review and repair in their presence, even if we've already done that repair between Darren and myself privately. Um, and a lot of times we will bullet point out, hey, this is what we were talking about. This is why. This is what daddy felt. This is what I felt. Here's how we resolved this. And we come together in unity in front of them. We do not do this perfectly. There are many, many times where I'm like, you need a timeout. No, you need a timeout. You know, um, so it's done imperfectly. <laughs> pause. You need to pause right now. You know, but um, we don't want to fight in front of them. I feel like that creates a lot of anxiety specifically for one of our children. Um, but we'll have disagreements. And if we need to fight it out, then we do it behind closed doors and come back and repair later. So that's what we do. Yeah, my, in my home growing up, there was no, that was not modeled at all. And um, like conflict, I, I learned that conflict was, was kind of a net, was a negative thing. And, and it was more so because I just didn't see it. Um, and Katie's really helped me learn that that's, she's really good at it. And, and I'm learning, and, and we have, because it's just the three of us, there's no, like, Brooks hears everything and is a part of a lot of our conversations. And, and, it, and it's like, I'm, it's okay. Like, I love what you guys are doing, and um, I think that's the right, just from my experience growing up, like, I wish that was modeled well, so I could learn in my now adulthood that that's possible. I think the piece that I would add, because I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling as well, and when we get to the conversation on conflict, 90% of the time, uh, in good Christian homes, conflict was resolved behind doors, and kids, knowing there was conflict, had no idea what was going on back there. There was just an outcome. And to model healthy conflict, res resolution of differences, and moving on without remainder is a huge gift. Uh, it, to 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 Daniel's Daniel's point, but that means you need to be able to resolve the differences and move on without remainder. So so that's the piece to learn. 
That's so good. We actually talk about how we live into forgiveness. If we have forgiven, what does that look like to to continue to forgive? And I mean, my boys need to practice that 25 times a day. But you have chosen to forgive. You guys have made repair. So what does it look like to move forward in your relationship in that forgiveness? Yeah. Okay. Still on anger, but more, I think, directed at your children. Um, This is a question more for you, Bill. I think it says, you talked about your son showing his anger appropriately towards his children. Can you explain more what that looks like? So maybe what's the line between inappropriate and appropriate anger towards your children? Yeah, uh, anger is a gift. We've talked about this before, but anger is a gift that signals a boundary violation. So what was the boundary that was violated? Is the degree of anger appropriate to the degree of violation? Is it calibrated properly? So when it goes into the emotional loss of temper, you can be angry without having to lose your temper. You, but you have to learn how to be angry in Jesus' name. That is to say, how would Jesus be angry, and he got angry, in this scenario? So it's, it's not a loss of control. It's not a loss of uh, sense of self. It's not Frankenstein or Jekyll and Hyde. It's not a different person. It is a communication that the line has been crossed, there's been a boundary that's been violated, and now we are going to respond to that rather than react to it, which uh, sometimes it takes, you gotta take a beat, you gotta take a, a minute to let the, let the air out of the system because it's pretty highly pressurized at that moment. But then in that, there's always a circle back and follow up, what, what was the boundary, what was the violation, and how, how, did, how did the response work? Um, the next question. Is that helpful? It's off. It's off. Is that helpful? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll just stick to co- conflict here. Um, how to help siblings' relationships when there's fighting between them? So what about when there's conflict amongst siblings? Um, yeah. At this phase... Um, I've had to step back and allow them to have it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's important for them to be able to, I guess, analyze what they're feeling. Um, And I also need to see it. You know, I need to see how all the seeds planted, good or bad, are coming out. And then they've also told me, Mom, we hate it when you get involved. Like, we got this. Can you just let us do it? You know? And so that's another, you know, space that I've had to um, back up and allow them to do that. And sometimes it gets really nasty. And sometimes I'm in the back cracking up and I'm just like, she shouldn't have said that. And you tripped out right there. But, you know, those kinds of things. Um, So I always tell them they're really funny. You know, I was like, I do not have to go to a comedy show because listening to you guys is hilarious, you know. But um, at their phase, I have to give them that space. So... Hopefully that helps. And, and, and if it's really bad, then I will talk to them. You know, but I try to just respect their boundaries and talk to them privately and not just get in their face. And when it gets really hard, we have to sit, stop, and let's walk it out. You know, what did you say? And you know, after taking emotionally healthy relationships, just you know, not having it modeled, you, you realize you don't most people don't know how to properly have an argument where you respect each other's differences and really find out what is the issue, you know, and what is the end result. We're arguing about it. We want the same things, but we're going about it the wrong way. 
So um, once we walk it out, I think they are able to see sometimes themselves. And in those moments, I'll say, you know, they'll even apologize. But when they were younger, I would say, you need to apologize. So I taught them that, and then now they're apologizing on their own because they're convicted. Um, with, with my kids being, uh, six and eight, um, I feel like we're really heavy or this works for us. So I'll just say that, um, we have to like teach them how to do it. Um, which is hard because as a parent, I feel like a lot of times you're just wanting to shut the situation down, the conflict, or like you want to get to the peace really quickly. Um, and so when conflict is happening, I know between our two kids, um, we actually have to kind of recreate what just happened with them. And uh, we use the phrase of like redo. Oh, let's do a redo. Um, and we will redo it in a way so that way they can see how it sounds and how it hears uh, and how it could hear to the other person. Um and it takes time, and then we make them practice the redo as well so that their brain is literally getting retrained of like, hey, when this person pulls his toy away from me, like they're, I'm not losing everything. They are just really excited about it too, right? So um, something about redoing it and practicing it well, and actually I think honoring your kids to know that they're smart enough that they will actually get this. Um, so just entering it in has been really helpful for us uh, when our kids uh, have conflict but they're also kids and they'll have conflict, you know? All right. Um, This is pointed to the fathers, but as a father, can you give some practical examples of calling out the daughter's sexuality and sons? What does that look like? Um, Probably the classic is uh, the first date a daughter has is with dad. And he, in the preparation and lead up for that, and mom is a complicit partner, uh, trains her, if you will, in how men ought to treat her. So he sets the bar high, not, not in, it doesn't have to be massively silly, limousine-y, you know, let's go to the $150 a plate. No, it's time and honoring and and as strange as it sounds the primary way to do it is affirming her beauty with it which includes emerging sexuality and the shape of her body which is always going to be a coin toss for kids um, because they're getting pummeled with all kinds of folks who are telling them what it should be like so to have the most important man in her life by the way that persists well into adulthood, despite um, maybe actions or reactions. It's still dad's eyes that she sees herself reflected in. So even chance comments uh, can be taken and turned in, in ways that, um, uh, that, that can be negatively spun. So it's that, those, those kinds of things. And then, and then I, especially the sexuality piece, because uh, we'll talk about that as much as, as you want to, but I, I, we need to have that conversation throughout the emerging life. You don't have the talk when they're 10 because you're already five years too late. It's sexual curiosity begins to develop really early, and, and they learn very quickly, are you a reliable source of information? And if you're not, they won't ask you anymore, and you'll just think, 
fine. And then you will be surprised at the level of awareness, the language, and the understandings. Uh, and so to have that conversation on an ongoing basis, uh, which celebrates uh, body shape and size and emerging beauty that complements character, uh, that becomes the, the primary, primary focus. That's great. We got to get more of that too. Okay. Um, another question. Um, how have you invited your kids into studying the Bible with you at an early age or just learning more about Jesus through scripture? That was hard for me. Um, again, my parents took me to church. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, but, well, I'm going to say it. My parents took me to church, but right after we went to the liquor store. Okay? So I have had a very tough time um, understanding what does it look like to disciple your kids at their age. I was discipled. Um, you know, I, someone walked me through the Bible and she was an ex-gang member and she was like ride or die you know so it was very tough it was different than that which I could present to a child um, and so when I began to homeschool them well first when I was in had them in public school I realized um, we were at a church at the time and the guy would do parenting conferences and he happened to be uh, very gifted with the heart of children, if you will, because he worked in law enforcement with abused kids. Mm -hmm. And so he had a special place for them. And so he would come and share with us things to do to help best raise the kids. Of course, he loved God and so forth. Uh, but when I tried to bring them home and share with them my life with Christ, I did not know how to do that. Um, I did not want to spend time with them. I just wanted to make sure I was in the word and thereby giving them um, what I sort of downloaded, you know? Uh, and so God grew me through homeschooling and uh, just being a mom. And I began to learn to read with them, as simple as that. You know, I never liked devotions at first. I thought they were kind of silly for some reason because I didn't grow up that way. I'll pick up a devotion even to this day. Five minutes, open it. We're just going to talk, you know, and I'll read it to them. I like, um, I don't know, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. Anybody know that one? We've read that literally three times. Like, not back to back, but just anything that will minister to the heart of, to them about just the, the love of Christ. It doesn't have to be a Bible study. So I do do a devotion with them. And then we, through the years, we've also done like small Bible studies and we would actually read something or a book, biblical, biblically inspiring book, or I'll give them a book that God puts on my heart to give them. Um, Kenya gave like Brother Lawrence the presence of God and she loved it. And so it's a matter of like praying too and just saying, God, these are your kids. You know their personalities. Um, you know your schedules as well. What do they need? I think that I had to learn. That was a humbling lesson I had to learn because I was very, 
you know, got to do this and make sure I did this, check off the list. And he broke me from that. Like, mm -hmm. so just actually spending time with them and walking it out. I think if we can model what it looks like in the same way we were talking about how we model how to have an argument. Well, how do you sit with God? How do you just wait until he shows up? How do you open your hands and say, Holy Spirit, show up? How do you pray? I think we have to do those same things, and we have to make space for that. It's really good. Thank you. Do you want to share? Um, I, I think what's been challenging for me in this specific area is that both of my kids are incredibly different which is like, yes, all of our kids are different, but even in the way they engage their faith or even how much they care about God, how much they care about the church. And so just trying to navigate like honoring and actually like following like their curiosity and who God is. Um, like my son is so much about details and, and facts. And so for him, um, you know, it's buying specific books that have these really goofy and funny facts about the Bible, but he loves it, right? Is he reading his Bible? No. But is he starting to understand more of who God is? Yes. And that's, that's great. My daughter is not like that at all. She is, she's so much more um, creative and she has an imaginative mind. Um, and so even, even the things like we're doing with the armor of God right now, she loves, she's such a like fashion and oriented six-year-old, which is wonderful. Um, and so she, ex you know, bringing life. So a, a challenge for me is be like, hey, Keith, this is the way that you really um, have intimate moments with God. And I love being with him in that way. And it's not going to be the same way <laughs> with my kids and having to like, I need to follow their curiosity and not kind of go down my lane, which is, it's hard to do, but it is beautiful when you can see your kids, you know, in their lanes that they're going in. Just follow that one. Well, I feel like ours is a little unique. Our kids are PKs for better or worse. But um, I really like what Bill said earlier. And the way I wrote it down on my notes is that um, this stuff is caught, not taught. So if it's lived through your life, your kids are going to absorb that and participate in that. Um, but we also have tried to be strategic. We've been strategic with scripture memorization. And we will do one verse a month. We will read it three or four times over the breakfast table and our kids learn it over time. Um, our oldest sees Darren get up every single morning in the word. He now asks to get up 15 minutes early and sit with Darren, but that just started in the last six months. Our youngest absolutely hates doing that, rebels every time he has to, throws a fit, ruins the entire morning. And so we've had to get creative with engaging him in that. So sometimes that looks like if he's having an anxious day or an overwhelming day, we will listen to or read one or two passages of scripture and we'll pull out his art supplies and say, what did you hear? What did you learn? What did God say? What did the Bible say? Who was it about? And just engage his imagination. Um, I find the more you force it, the less they want to. And the more you embody it, the more they're attracted to that. So, um, yeah, that's all I got. Yeah, this is, um, I, we're, I, for a long time, I was trying to get Brooklyn, like, to give me feedback and I and in this time like I'm, I've just been learning I want his feedback in this area so we'll, we'll read or we'll pray together and I want more ver I want more conversation or communication so I'd get defeated and what I've learned is it's it's just working so my encouragement is just do it do it and keep doing it and and begin to build a rhythm and a habit and and whether it seems like 
he's catching on, she's catching on, like there's seeds being planted and it's starting to pay off. And, um, but we've, we've got some really sweet times. We have this um, daily prayer we do in the car. Now it's, now it's our carpool thing. Um, and he loves it, he has it memorized. It's all scripture and it's just because it's been a habit for us. And, um, and also helping him have context to why why are we reading scripture? Why are we doing a daily prayer? I think it's helpful to explain like the importance of it. It's not just so that we do it and check a box that there's actually something in there for you. Um, yeah. Um, we're gonna have to end with this last question because we do wanna make space for a little bit of prayer, but I think this is a really good question and it actually speaks to something we were praying about before we started this evening. And the specific question is, if primary parenting is completed at age 13, then what's the best approach if your kids are past that age? And I want to take it a step further to speak to the, what we were sensing as we prayed is what if we feel like we missed out on a certain stage of parenting, like we're feeling like we missed it, we screwed it up, we can't go back, now what? Um, so I think it's that, you know, 13 and up, but I think, you know, some people maybe are in here who have like five-year-olds and they're like, dang it, I didn't do that thing I was supposed to do when they were two or whatever. And so, um, yeah, depending on the different stages of parenting you guys are in, um, maybe you have something to speak to on that. I feel like that'd be Shalene or Bill because we don't have kids that old yet. Um, well, just count on it. You're going to screw up. And that's okay. Uh, that's part of, the, part of the journey. You're going to miss stuff. You're going to say things that you wish you hadn't said that will come back to haunt you. This is all places for grace to intervene. Jesus, I keep on saying this because I've seen it happen over and over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit will play a winning hand with whatever card he's dealt. So... When, when, when we, if I can own it, if I'm aware of it, and I can circle back around, uh, uh, when, when um, our youngest son was born, Jude ent- had a season of postpartum depression that uh, spiraled into clinical depression, dealing with some, her dad died when she was three and never properly managed that, and family history of those kinds of things. As a result, she feels that she was emotionally distant from the two older boys particularly. Uh, and they have both acknowledged that that's what they felt too. But now they're 41 and 39, and we can talk freely and openly. It made them comfortable to seek professional help when they needed it. Uh, it enabled them, to, when we owned that and told the story, it gave us um, a different kind of conversation to have. Uh, once you surrender perfection as the outcome, then you can enjoy what you actually end up with and celebrate the gifts that each bring to the, to the larger conversation. So I think, I think it's like, you know, you know what? I need to recognize that he trusted me with these imperfect humans I also am imperfect. This is going to multiply. Yes, it will. And so now how do, we, how do we offer that up? How do we make that learning into a spiritual practice uh, without um, making outcomes and satisfaction and happiness the end, end, end goal in that? I don't know if that's helpful. If... 
Is that helpful? Does anyone else want to add anything to that? Can you add anything to what okay. Bill says? Okay, all right. By popular demand, hold on. Amy and I thought, oh, this is this one had kind of been addressed with that sexuality question, but there's going to be one last bonus question about sex. <laughs> so what age would you suggest we begin talking to our kids about sex and all the other things that they're being exposed to? I feel like the ages are earlier and earlier with all influences our kids see. So Amy left, but she's doing a sexuality series right now with the youth. I mean, I am not an expert, but in our home, we begin the, con well, I think the conversations begin when they're old enough to be curious about any of it. Um, Bill taught us from day one that our kids are sexual from the day that they're born, and the more comfortable we get with that, the more comfortable we'll be with them as they enter into that in the various stages of life. Um, but the short answer is before they hear it somewhere else. And so... Um, yeah, taking inventory of your kids' access points to other people that may share with them, online activity, various forms of exposure, and you have the conversation first in an age-appropriate way. Um, we literally started talking about it when our kids were two years old. Our oldest, we had the conversation because we realized that he was being exposed to some discussions around it when he was eight. And then a few months later, we kind of, we, we continued to talk about it and touched back in and I referenced sex and he's like, what is that again? Like it completely went over his head and he did not remember, but we continue to have an ongoing conversation. Our youngest is much more curious, much more intuitive. He notices attraction between people. He notices magazines with images on them. We have the conversations earlier with him about that um, age appropriate conversations earlier because he needs that information. And what I don't want my kids to have is unanswered questions that they're going to seek answers to elsewhere. So I need to get comfortable enough having that discussion when they become curious. Um, and if I don't know how to do it, if you don't know how to do it, go figure out how to do it because that's your job. So read what you need to, ask the people you need to, get comfortable with it because you need to engage these conversations yep. with yep. your kids. Yep. I, can I just say one of thing? Course. Kids deal really well with reality. So if they discover that you have not been real with them, they won't trust you for much of anything else. So the reality, uh, not just around that topic, but when bad things happen, don't protect them, age, age appropriate, obviously, but don't protect them from the bad things that happen because they will interpret it. They will learn about it. And if they have discovered that, that what you have told them is not, they deal really well with reality and not well with anything else. So that becomes kind of the rubric. I mean, yes, yeah, so we can get into a lot of detail, but we get really comfortable naming body parts. Um, we don't create weird names or scenarios around what sex is. So when our kids two or three, I mean, Amos literally would ask questions at three that I didn't have answers to and had to circle back around on, but you tell them the facts in ways that they can understand. So, I mean, it's, it's simple, but, um, yeah, for Amos, it was, yeah, a man and a woman come together when they're in a committed relationship and they make a baby. Well, how do they do that? Well, there's an intimacy involved. Well, how do they do that? And there is a stopping point when they're three or four. Um, but I don't 
tell them something that's not true or derail the conversation. I have the conversation to the point where I don't feel comfortable doing that anymore at their age. And I say, you know, we'll talk more about this later. You will be able to understand this more to greater depth later. And when you have questions, come to me. I'll always answer them. Um, and you know your kids and what they can handle. Yeah. If you don't do it, somebody at preschool will. And in really weird ways. Yep. Uh, with my kids being six and eight, I have found it's actually really helpful instead of me trying to answer their question real quick, be like, what, do, what have you heard or what do you think? And actually letting them, because then you don't have to do the hard work of trying to dig like, out. What like, are they actually asking? Because, yeah, what are they actually yeah, asking? Yeah, exactly. And like us as parents, we naturally go way farther than what they're actually thinking. And, yeah. you, you know, and, and so sometimes just really just putting the question back, which actually, you know, it's empowering for them to think through things and process things as well. Um, and it just makes our lives easier <laughs> as well. So uh, it, it, that's been helpful at times at, at our age that we are with the kids. Really good. Thanks for listening to Gardner's Podcast. We love sharing helpful resources like this for our community and beyond. If you want to find out more about Garden Church and everything we have going on here, please visit garden.church.